Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So, Dawn and I and the rest of our staff were really surprised in the first worship service because Jim Green gave us this gift from the church family. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you very much for that. On behalf of Dawn and I, our family, and uh, Josh and Amy Stratton, and Dan and Emily Davis, and Vicki Collins, and uh, um, all, of our, all of our staff, and Jessica Robinson, of course. Jessica couldn't be here today. Uh, she's still battling her uh, chemotherapy treatments. But Lord willing, she's coming to Christmas Eve service. So maybe if you hit the right service, hit the jackpot, you can see her there at that as well. So be praying for Jessica, our children's ministry leader and women's ministry leader. You want to be, be praying for her as, as well. She's doing, she's doing well, but it's been rough. So be praying for her. So what we're going to do is uh, launch into our, our message this morning. And you know, one of the things about the Christmas season that's so exciting, I think for a lot of us, is just it's the idea of coming home. Uh, of having family in, of going to see family, of going to be with dear friends and the people that you're connected with, the people that you care about. And there's something about the Christmas season that yes, we celebrate the birth of Christ and that's all very, very important, of course, but there's this undercurrent in our culture of coming home and just being with those that you really love and care about. And so maybe you've traveled and you're visiting with family today. Maybe you're going to go see family, uh, traveling tonight or tomorrow, perhaps. Uh, maybe, maybe this is the, the Christmas that nobody's coming to see you and you're going to hang out with friends and, and things like that. Whatever it is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful time of year because we are going home or coming home. And that's a wonderful thing as well. I want to show you another picture here. Because part of what we've been talking about this Advent season, as Pastor Josh mentioned, is that we've, we've said that the idea of, of, of Christmas and Advent is God coming near, God coming. And what did he do when he came? And one of the things that Jesus did when he came was he came to make a family. Now, he came to bring people into the family of God. He came to take people who were lost and orphaned from God, separated from God, and he wanted to make them the children of God. And in a sense, the Christmas story is saying, come home for Christmas. Come home. Welcome home. Come find the love that you're longing for. Come find the acceptance that you're yearning for. Come find that, that, that peace, that acceptance, that, that inclusion, that, that just being welcomed and included that we all long for. The understanding that we matter, that somebody notices us, that somebody cares about us, that welcome. That's what family is all about. In March of 1973, uh, a young girl by the name of Lori Sturm. She's the girl in the center of the picture here. Lori Sturm was sitting in the back seat of her family's station wagon on the tarmac at Travis Air Force Base in California. And the reason that she was in that station wagon at that air base at that time was because her father, whom he, she had not seen for over six years, was finally coming home. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Stern 
was a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. He was shot down over Hanoi, North Vietnam, during the, uh, the Vietnam War, and he was captured by the North Vietnamese, and he was incarcerated as a prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton, the, the infamous uh, prison camp there in the center of the city. And he had been shot, he had been beaten, he had been tortured all kinds of ways, and he had been imprisoned for over six years. And Lori and her mother and her brothers and her sister had no idea whether their dad was still alive or not. He was, he was missing, they weren't sure what was happening. But there he was, he had gotten off the plane after he had been released with the other prisoners of war. They had a special ceremony, a welcoming ceremony. It was called uh, um, Operation Welcome Home. And uh, as they were, they were having this, Lieutenant Colonel Sturm had to give a short speech. And he gave a short speech. And the next thing you know, Lori's car door flew open. And she says, I had to get out of that car. I ran down the runway as fast as I could. In fact, I had to cut this off to make it fit. But her feet are actually up off the ground, both of them. She's running so fast. And her arms are flung open, her spirit's soaring, because she's going to throw her arms around her father that she hasn't seen for over six years. It's an amazing thing to be welcomed home. It's an amazing thing to be reunited with the people you really love and you really care about. Now, a lot of us are are approaching Christmas and it's a hard time. And it's a hard time because of broken relationships. Uh, People have left. People have died. People are very, very sick. Uh, There's other hardships and there's things like that. And for some of us, Christmas is a very, very painful time. And I share that and mention that just to acknowledge the fact that the reason why there's that pain is because of the high value we put on being loved and accepted and welcomed and included. The high value we put on family and connectedness and staying together and them never leaving us or us never leaving them. That's, that's what's so special about family and why coming home and staying home is so very, very important. The thing that's amazing is that the love and you and I sense the longing, the yearning that we have to be loved, to be welcomed, to be at home, that actually is just a mirror. It's a foretaste of our relationship with God. The fact that God longs for you and me to come home. He longs for us to have that tight, intimate relationship with Him that will never end. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's what gives us courage this life to press on and face adversity and move forward and accomplish great things for him because he said he would never leave us or forsake us. That's all a picture of the family that God longs for us to be part of. He's saying to each and every one of us, come home, come home, come home for Christmas. Apostle Paul wrote a letter to some early Christians These Christians lived in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, in a town or region called Galatia. And as he was writing to them, 
in the middle of all this, he was challenging them and encouraging them to make sure that they understood that God really did love them, that he really had accepted them because of Jesus. And there was nothing that they had to do to to perform or earn God's approval and acceptance. In fact, where we're going to be reading in Galatians chapter four, verse one, this is on page 974 if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you if it's not on your, on your tablet or on your phone. You're welcome to use one of those Bible books there. But page 974, Galatians chapter four, verse one. The thing that's it's amazing is this, this little paragraph in the middle of this book, it, it looks like it's kind of like a, a hint of the Christmas story of, of Jesus coming into our world and, and uh, what that means and the significance of it. But it's actually an anchor point and a larger discussion about What does a person have to do to really feel loved and accepted and approved and blessed by God? What do I have to do to really be welcomed by God? What do I have to do to be included by God? What do I have to do to have God really bless me and send his spirit and his power in my life? What do I have to do to experience that? And there were false teachers that were affecting and oppressing the church people there, leading them astray, and basically they were saying, you've got to work for it. You need to go back and keep the Jewish laws and rituals and sacrifices and dietary code and all these kinds of rules and regulations. You need to keep all that and and, and see the reason why this was so disturbing and so uh, oppressive to them was these people had come out of a Gentile background. They worshiped idols. They weren't Jewish. They, they didn't keep the Jew, you know, they didn't give up shrimp and oysters and stuff like that. And they had ham sandwiches all the time. And they were doing that kind of stuff. They were certainly not kosher in any way. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They didn't offer sacrifices. They didn't go to the synagogue. They worshiped the different idols that were around them. But these false teachers were coming to them saying, if you really want to become a follower of Jesus, you've got to become Jewish first. So convert to Judaism, and then you can find Jesus. And the Apostle Paul's saying, no, all you need is Jesus. All you need is Jesus. You just go directly to God through him because Jesus is the one who died for you. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead for you. Jesus is the one who sent his Holy Spirit. You just need Jesus, that's all. Which kind of is a sobering reminder to us because a lot of us go through life thinking, well, I know I need Jesus, but I sure better behave well. And I know I need Jesus, but I better give more money to church. I know I need Jesus, but man, oh man, oh man, I better get my act together. Because if I don't get my act together, God will stop loving me. I know Jesus loves me, but if I really want God to love me, I better behave and work and strive more and more for his approval. Paul is saying through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that's not so. The fact is Christ did it all for you. You just need him. Now what's interesting in this little paragraph as we get ready to read it is that He tells us here that the key is to become a child of God. Because Christ came. He came at Christmas to take sinners and slaves and make them the children of God. He turns sinners into sons and daughters of God. He takes slaves and he sets them free to become the children of God. That's that's why Christ came. And we're going to see in this passage, why do we need this? I mean, I thought I already was a child of God. I'm a human being, right? I thought we're all God's children, right? That's what we sing. That's what we say. I'm always, I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. Well, wait a minute. You're saying I'm not. Well, why? What's the problem? What's our plight? What's, what's the problem here? 
we're also going to see not only is there this problem, but what's God's solution? What's he doing to solve the problem? The salvation that he brought that fixes this problem. And then we're going to take a look at, at the end of the paragraph, what's, what's the results? What's, what changes because of what God has done through Christ for us as well? Okay, so let's read together. I'm going to read, you can follow along, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, page 974. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, <clears throat> born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. So in this passage, Paul is saying to us here, I want you to get very clearly that the key to experience all the blessings and all the benefits that God has for you, and he uses this idea of an inheritance, being an heir and receiving an inheritance. The way you get your inheritance is not by working for it, not by being a slave and trying to earn it, but rather by receiving it as a child of God. And so let's launch into this. Here's the problem. This is why we need to become children of God. He says in verses one and two, he's using this analogy of somebody receiving an inheritance. And he's saying that it's, it's like a wealthy person that wants to give an inheritance to his children or his grandchildren, but that child is still a minor. They're, they're legally like an infant. They have no rights and privileges as an adult a mature, a majority person. And so there they are as this minor, and because they're a minor, they have to have a legal guardian or trustee overseeing their lives. And so maybe they're a millionaire, maybe they're a billionaire as a child, but they have no rights to that money to do whatever they want. They have to have somebody governing them, a nanny, a, a governess, a, a, a trustee, a supervisor to make sure that they don't waste their money. And that child will take that a million bucks and go down to the candy store and say, yeah, I'd like a Tootsie Pop billion bucks sure I'll swap you for that I'll buy that Tootsie Pop for a million bucks they have no concept of the value of their wealth they need someone who does to oversee them lest they be cheated lest they waste it lest they be be uh, uh, tricked out of it somehow so Paul is simply saying here even though you receive an inheritance if you're still a minor and underage you're no better than a slave you really don't have any rights, even though you're the heir of everything that there is. And he says, that's the way we were. That's the way we Jewish people were. We were under God's law. It was our governor. It was our trustees. And we had all these blessings that were promised to Abraham. And we couldn't access them because the law was telling us what to do. Do this. Don't do that. Make sure you make sure you keep the law and we were always falling short and we were just really slaves to that law and then lest the people who are of a non-jewish background think that they're somehow better than the jews he says in verse three 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. That's a, that's a, t- a very technical term that we don't have time to go into great detail about but he's really just talking about the different gods and goddesses and angels and demons and deities that people of the first century pagan world worshiped. The Jews had it right. They worshiped the one true creator God, the God of the Bible. And they were monotheistic in that way and they worshiped him and they loved him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what they were supposed to do. But the gods of the pagans, there were so many different gods and goddesses that they would worship. And the thing is, when you compared Judaism and you compared paganism, they were actually very similar. Now they made fun of each other, argued with each other, attacked and criticized each other because of their different religious beliefs, but actually underneath the surface there were a lot of similarities. It was all about performance. It was all about earning approval. It was all about manipulating the forces that were in power over you and trying to get them to do what you wanted them to do. In Judaism, it was keeping the sacrifices and following the temple ritual and staying kosher and the Sabbath day and the Ten Commandments and all of that, and then God would bless you. And so there was a lot of working and earning for that, striving for that. In paganism, it was about using magic and formulas and spells and incantations and the rituals of the different religious groups to try to coerce and manipulate the angels and spirits and powers of the world to get what they wanted, to get what you wanted them to do. You're feeling sick, you would pray to the deity and hopefully they would make you better. You want your crops to produce more? Well, you better keep God's law and God will bless you. Either way, there was this idea of somehow I get what I want, I control the deity by working and manipulating and trying to get them to give me what I want through my own self-effort. Paul says, look, you are a slave to that. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you are a slave to that because you never were free, because you could never work hard enough to get God to love you. You could never work hard enough to get the deities, the demons, the the angels, the gods and goddesses to give you what you want. You could never get their approval. You You always lived in fear because you were never working hard enough, well enough, doing the things the way you needed to do. You were a slave. Now, I think a lot of us, especially those of us who grew up in a church background, we're aware that Jesus says that if we're, Sinners, if we commit sin, it's because we're slaves to sin. Jesus said that in John chapter 8. If you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And so, yes, we're enslaved to sin because we can't stop doing it. We just do it naturally, automatically. I've, I've just, you know, I know this sounds so elementary, but my mom and dad never taught me how to lie because I just knew how to do it. I just, you can ask, you ask my brother, you can, my other brothers, you can ask them. They, they'll tell you, he was a big liar, yeah. You know, I just, knew, I just knew how to do it because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, I, I, I just knew how to. I, no one ever taught me how to be afraid or anxious or worry. I, I just know how to do it. No one told me how to be selfish and greedy. I just know how to do it because I'm a sinner and I'm a slave to that sin and I can't break that on my own. But there's a slavery in another sense. We see that 
unrighteousness about us. We see that inadequacy spiritually. We see our distance from God. We want to be connected. We want to be in control and we're out of control. We somehow want to try to get control of those things. And we think that if I just work harder, am better, behave well, give more, do this, if I just were a better person, acted better, thought better, worshiped better, then God would, God would give me all that stuff or the deities would give me all that stuff. And the truth of the matter is that we always fall short and we're a slave, we're enslaved to that idolatry. We're enslaved to that kind of works righteousness, that type of self-effort to try to gain God's approval. And Paul says, as long as you're a slave, you really aren't going to inherit anything. You're going to miss out on all those blessings of the inheritance that we have that God wants to give to His children. The, the key is to no longer be a slave but become a son, a child of God. And so that's why in verse 4 he says this, and this is, this is the solution, the salvation that he gives us described here, the plan that God unfolded to solve our problem. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman and born under the law. Now, there's a lot here in verse 4. But he says, when the time is right, when the time was right, God sent forth His Son. The Son has always existed as the eternal God, member of the Trinity. That Son was sent on a mission and He came to earth. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas time, the incarnation, the, the time when God, the Son, clothed Himself with human flesh, left aside His glory, took off His power, took off His, his glory in all of that way. He remained God, but He clothed Himself with human flesh and limited Himself to human flesh. In fact, He describes it even further. It says here that He was born, under the, born of a woman. Not so much a reference to the virgin birth, but the idea of He was a human being. He was born just like you were born and I was born. Born into this world. And so he had all the characteristics of a human being. He had all the same kind of struggles and challenges and physical limitations that a human being has. He, he had all the experiences, all this, the sensory experiences that a human being went through. He had, in every way was tempted and tried and tested just like you and I are, except in one way he was different. He never gave in to sin. He obeyed His Father perfectly. He was righteous, not just in spirit and in nature, but He was righteous in His experience as well, in His practice. And yet, He shares our human life in that way. He was also born under the law, meaning that He was Jewish, meaning that He was, yes, having to do what God commanded Him to do, but He kept the law perfectly. He was the only one that wasn't a slave to it because he obeyed it perfectly. And it says that he was born of a woman, born under the law. Why did this all come about? Why are we celebrating Christmas like we are? In verse 5, notice what it says. He was he, with his son. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law for this purpose, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. A lot of heavy concepts here, but so beautiful and so powerful, so wonderful for us to understand here. He says that this Jesus came, 
God's son was sent on the mission. The mission was to redeem those who are under the law, those who are enslaved to the law, those who could not keep the law of God, those who constantly failed in trying to earn God's approval, failed in fulfilling God's expectations. He sent his son to redeem them. Redeem simply means to pay a price in order to set free to pay a price to set someone free. And so whether it was going to the slave market and buying a slave and then releasing them, or maybe in our day and age, I don't know if they still do this or not. Do, you, do they still have layaway at stores? I'm not talking about where you go to take a nap. I'd like to go lay away. I can't stand it while my wife's shopping. I want to go take a nap, okay? I'm not talking about that. Layaway was when you wanted to buy something, but you didn't have the money. Okay, for all, all our young people here, uh, before credit cards were real popular, you would say, I want to buy this object, but I want to make payments on it over a period of time. And so they, you'd put a down payment, you'd put it off to the side, they'd put it back in a little storage area, and you made you know, four or five payments until the purchase price was complete. And when you made that last purchase price, you got to take the object home that you were buying. You paid the price for it. You paid a price to set it free because now it was your piece of stuff that you could take to your house off the hands of the merchandiser, okay? Jesus came to purchase us because we were slaves to sin and we were slaves to the idols and slaves to our guilt and shame and slaves to all of this and we could not rescue ourselves and set ourselves free. He came to purchase us and set us free. Now, what was the purchase price he paid? I want you to take your Bible, flip the page over to chapter one, and then we're gonna look at chapter three. But in chapter one, I want you to notice what it says in verse three. Chapter one, verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God the Father. In other words, he's saying that he gave himself. Jesus himself was the, the price that was paid. He, his life was the price in order to rescue us, to deliver us from this present evil age, to rescue us and, and set us free. Now over in chapter 3, verse 13, look there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the thing is, is that the price that Jesus paid was he was willing to let himself be nailed to the cross. That the cross is mentioned there in verse 13. It's called a tree made of wood. And he's hanging on this tree, hanging on this cross. And in the Jewish mindset, someone to die hanging in that way was the most shameful, humiliating way to die. It was a sign that they were being cursed by God. And yet Paul is saying, you and I are cursed. You and I have a lot to be ashamed of because of our sin, because of our failure, because of our inadequacy, our weakness. We're cursed. And yet Christ was willing to take our curse and make it his very own. And he showed that by being nailed to a cross and he died for us there. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed for you and he was cursed for me to set us free, to make us the children of God. That was the price that he paid. The price 
for making us the children of God was his own life. Notice what it says in verse 5 and then in verse 6. He came to redeem those that were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. You know, when you receive something, it's not that you've earned it. It's not that you've worked for it. I mean, last time I checked, none of us had any part to play in our own birth, right? I mean, think about that a little bit. Your mom and dad maybe had a choice. Maybe they were surprised. Either way, you had no control and I had no say over it either. It was something that others did to make it happen. Mom and dad, and maybe, of course, Almighty God himself. This verse is saying here that he came to redeem us so that we might receive as a gift, not because we've earned it, receive the adoption as sons. In the first century Roman world, when a wealthy landowner wanted to pass on an inheritance to his children, particularly to his sons, he would set up the legal arrangement and then when the son finally reached the age of maturity, which was around 14 or so, at that time there would be a public ceremony that indicated my son has now reached maturity. He is the heir of my estate. All I have goes to him. And that was a a way of adopting that son in that way. And I know we look at someone who's not our biological children and we want to make them part of our family and we go through the process of adoption. But in that culture, even if you were a biological child of your parents, there was an adoption. You were adopted into the family and you were adopted into adulthood, so to speak. And you then had all the rights and privileges as the heir of that estate. It was publicly recognized. Until that time, that son was under the authority of of tutors and governors and trustees. And yes, they're the, the, the wealthy heir, but they don't have any advantages because they haven't reached adulthood yet. What God is saying here through this passage is, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from sin and shame. He did this. Okay? He did it to make us God's children. But not just God's children. He, came to, he, he did this to make us God's adult children with all the rights and privileges. And I know some of you are thinking, well, how come he says that you might become the sons of God? Why not sons and daughters of God? And you're right. That bothers me too. But the truth of the matter is, is this. Yes, it is that we become the children of God. But there was something unusual in that culture at the time when Paul is writing this, is that the people who received the inheritance were not the daughters. It was the sons. It was the oldest son in particular. He received the inheritance. He got all the blessing. He, got all, he had to take care of his sisters, and he had to take care of his mother, and he had to take care of his family. He had to do all of that, but maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't depending how crooked of a person he was. But this passage is saying that every person that puts their trust in Jesus Christ is considered by God to be a son. It's not a gender issue. 
It's not a patriarchy issue. It's an issue of the privileged blessing and position of being the heir of God. Every man, every woman, every boy and girl who has put their trust in Jesus Christ is being treated like the adult son who is the heir of all the estate. We're all included in Christ. We're all welcomed in Christ. And you say, oh, that just seems so strange here in American Western culture, and it is. But if you go to Asia, it's very similar. It's the adult sons, they're the ones that are privileged. And you go to other cultures, it's the adult son. They're the ones that are privileged. God is saying all of us, men, women, boys, girls, white, black, old, young, whether you've been coming to church for a long time or you've been going to church only today, if you're in Christ, you have the same privileges as everybody else in Jesus, and that's the privilege of being the adult son with all those rights, all that inheritance as well. So he's saying that when we become children of God, and maybe we should explain it this way. Okay, we see what Christ did. He sets us free through his death on the cross. He makes us the children of God. Well, how does that transaction apply to my life? I mean, how does it become real to me? How do I experience becoming a child of God? Well, Jesus said that as many as receive Jesus welcome Jesus into their lives and make him their Lord and Savior. As many as received him, to them, he gave the rights to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So to become a child of God, you look at what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and you put your trust in him and saying, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. I need you to make me your child. I need you to do this and set me free from my sin and shame and guilt. And I want to become a child of God, so I'm trusting you. I really do want to come home. I want to... Experience your love and acceptance in a way I never have before. I'm coming home. And I'm trusting you, Jesus, to do this. What happens when we become children of God? I'll show you what happens because it's pretty cool. Look at what it says in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, And because you are sons... He's not saying, and because you might be, maybe, maybe not, not sure it really took, but to, you know, hopefully it did. No, because you are sons. If you have trusted Christ, if you belong to him, you are already automatically a child of God. You belong to him. You are considered one of his sons. And remember, this is not a male thing. It's, it's you as an individual are considered the child of God with all the rights and privileges as, as an adult son. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The first wonderful thing that happens when you become a child of God, when you're uh, adopted into His family in this way, the first wonderful thing that happens is you get a new identity. God's Holy Spirit comes and lives inside your life. The Spirit of Jesus Christ comes and lives inside of you. Now, you know, again, to use... A reminder from everyday life, when you meet a family, um, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, there was a, the, uh, one of the church families last week had, had their adult uh, child home visiting. And when I met the daughter, I could see instantly her father's face. And, and only it was a pretty version of it. And it was, it was I, I, I just, sorry, Don. Okay. But anyway, okay. So I, 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 I saw that and it was very obvious that she was his daughter. 
in an attractive way. But, but there, there, she, there was that genetic facial structure that indicated that, that she was his offspring. And, and then there are others, other ways that you see siblings are similar. You see the, the, the kids in a family look alike. And maybe they have different color hairs, but the facial features and maybe even the tone of voice and, and uh, their height, their stature, their physical ability and athleticism or musical ability or artistic ability, things like that. You see these characteristics that seem to be passed down. And, and sometimes you can look at a child and you say, where did they get their red hair? Look at that fiery red hair. Oh, that's like Uncle, you know, El- Uncle Elmer. He had that red hair. You know, they lived back there on the farm in Kansas. And, you know, look at, look at that. She looks like, you know, Aunt Murgatroyd. You know, she just... Really, really look at, look at the shape of her nose and look at, and it's, it's all these genetic traits being passed down into the families and, and, and next generations. Well, the, the distinguishing hereditary characteristic of the children of God is not their racial features, it's not their gender, it's not their nationality or ethnicity, it's not their language, it's not what socioeconomic strata, if they're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, none of those things are the distinguishing marks of someone who's a Christian or not. It's not even what denomination or church they go to, it's not when they go to church, it's not that. The distinguishing characteristic of whether or not someone really belongs to Jesus Christ is do they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them? God's Spirit is the seed of life that links us to God's family. And so as you see the Spirit of God working in someone's life and you hear them talk and you can hear them talk about Jesus and you, you see the hunger and desire they have for God's Word and, and they, they have a, a, a sorrow, a sadness when they sin and they want to get right with God and they have a, a desire, a, a boldness, a courage even to speak up and let others know about Christ. And then you see those characteristics of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. All those things are bubbling out of their life and it's an obvious sign that they belong to God and they're a member of his family. You see, when you become a child of God, you get the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and you begin to look like your older brother, Jesus. You begin to resemble him in the way you act and think and decide and move through life. But that spirit, the greatest thing that that spirit does as he lives inside of you is he not only gives you a new identity, but he gives you a new intimacy with God the Father. Because it says in, in the middle of verse, at the end of verse six there, the Spirit of God is in our hearts, right there in the very core of our being, and that Spirit is crying out, Abba, Father. That'd be like if we translate it into, you know, modern day Pennsylvania Dutch English or whatever it is that we talk around here, okay? Daddy, Papa, Dada. But it's not the idea of immaturity like a babbling of a child. It's the idea of a loving nearness and and a familial intimacy. That that closeness, that connectedness. You know, when that grandchild is on your lap, they can pull at your beard. When the the kid comes and, and the child, the son or daughter comes and says, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? And you let them drive because you, you have that familial relationship with them. When a child is hungry, when the child is hurting, when the child is sick, you're there, that connectedness, that intimacy, that love, that acceptance, that, that patience with each other, that gentleness because they're your child. 
They're the apple of your eye. You have that kind of relationship with Almighty God, your Creator, right now if you are a child of God. Right now you have it. You don't have to go get it. You don't have to try harder to experience it. You've got it. It's yours. Think about the impact that has upon your life. Think about if knowing God is your daddy that you can pray to and that he will always listen to you. How will that affect your prayer life? What what does that do when you go to pray? Are you thinking, he's really listening to me? Or are you thinking, oh, he's too busy. He's distracted. You know, I've, I've blown it. I've failed too much. He wouldn't pay attention to me anyway. I don't deserve that. He wouldn't listen to me. He wouldn't do anything because I'm just nobody. No, you're his child. Of course he's going to listen to you. He's longing to hear from you. Think about how this affects if we fail. What if we blow it? And we all blow it. I blow it. What if we sin? What if we relapse? What if we do something that we know is not right and we we begin to feel that guilt and that shame because we've done something that's offended God? Well, a loving father, what's he going to do in that situation? Forgive. Forgive quickly. What's he going to do beyond forgiving? He's going to try to help us correct our behavior so we don't do it again. So maybe there is discipline. And maybe there's that patient correction. But he's going to do that so that we can learn to overcome and become more like Jesus in the process. Think about what this means for us as a church if we have this same familial intimacy, this this family familiarity with God the Father. Do we have the rights to say to people who are different from us, you don't belong here? You're not white enough. You're not rich enough. You're not smart enough. You haven't been around here long enough. You You haven't done what I've done enough. And you have no part of our fellowship. You have no part of my life. You have no part of our our friendship, our circle, our network of friends. No, the thing is, is all those barriers that we tend to erect to keep other people out that are not as good as us or different than us, we have to tear those all down. Because the church is the family of God. We need to welcome and include each other. If you ever find yourself turning your nose up, you would never do this in front of people, but if you ever find yourself turning your nose up and saying, I'm not going to spend time talking to him because I think he's a jerk, or she's a jerk, she's messy, or they stink, or they're, they're uncouth, or they're not cool, just remember God has never said that about you. He's always thought you were cool. He's always thought you were loving. He's always wanted to be with you, and he wants you to come home. And Christ made it possible for that to happen. So we can welcome and include each other. So we can welcome the stranger. So we can accept the outcast. So we can include them, no matter where they come from and where they've been, even if they are different than us. But there's one more really wonderful thing, a third very impactful thing that happens because we become the children of God. And that's at the end of verse 7 because it says there, so you, you, and by the way, the you there is you singular. And Paul is just kind of bringing down from, instead of talking about you all, he's now saying, hey, you, you guy, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. 
I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Wake up. I'm talking to you. Okay? That's what he's saying. I'm speaking to you personally. So he's saying you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. You don't have anything that you have to be afraid of anymore. You don't have to be ashamed of anything anymore. You don't have to be worried about God's acceptance or God's approval anymore. You don't have to think about that anymore. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. You get the inheritance. That's the third wonderful thing, the third way that our childhood in God's family impacts our lives. We receive this inheritance. Everything that God has, all his property, all his possessions, everything that he owns, guess what? It's been bequeathed to us. It belongs to us. When my dad's mom passed away, I'm not sure what my brothers got, but I got a set of dishes and a bag full of wheat pennies. And if you know, don't know what wheat pennies are, I'll tell you what they are a little later, okay? Okay. So it was just kind of a little thing to remember our Nana. And it was something that was very special to me, and I, I value them. I still have all that stuff, and we use it occasionally. But your God is giving an inheritance which is the entire universe. Yes, it's heaven. Isn't that exciting? The new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. That's wonderful. That's cool. Uh, but it's also the, his presence in our lives, his Holy Spirit. It's also his word that's without error, that's always true, that will live forever. It's the family of God. It's the salvation that we have. It's, it's having a purpose, a, a, a power of God in our lives, gifts of God in our lives to go and do his work. These are all parts of our inheritance. And beyond all that, there's this glory that comes. The glory of being in the presence of God. That's our inheritance. But you know the bottom line of what our inheritance is? It's, it's God. He's our inheritance. And we're his inheritance. You see, Jesus came not just to give you what you need. Jesus is what you need. Okay? That's, I heard another preacher say that. I wish I'd come up with it. Jesus didn't come just to give you what you need. He does do that. But Jesus is what you need. That's why He came. He is our inheritance. And no one and nothing can ever take him away from you if you are God's child through trusting Christ. So I just, I want to kind of tie it all together today and just ask, are you a child of God? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? And if you've never done that, today's the day to do that. And whether, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or, or a short time, do you see how rich you are in Christ you might not have two pennies to rub together. But if you have Jesus, you have more than enough because he will take care of you. And, and maybe you're sick, but you have eternal life. And that's not just, you know, like life insurance, eternal life insurance, more than that. It's like a quality of life that really matters. It's life without regrets. It's life that fully satisfies. You have that today. You have his word that will never be broken. You don't have to ever worry about someone saying that's fake news or it's not true, you can't trust it. It's true. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. And you have the abiding presence, the permanent presence of God's Holy Spirit living inside of you. You belong to him. Now this picture of Lori Sturm, 15-year-old Lori Sturm, running across the tarmac into the arms of her father, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Sturm, the former POW. This is such a beautiful picture. It won the Pulitzer Prize that year. Uh, it was kind of like the picture people saw as the closing chapter of the Vietnam conflict. You know, they finally came home, the POWs. But there's an underside to this picture that's actually very sad. Three days before this photo was taken, an army chaplain went up to Lieutenant Colonel Sturm and handed him a Dear John letter from his wife. She wanted divorce. She was tired of waiting. She had been with other men. She didn't know if he'd ever come home. So she wanted out. And Lieutenant Colonel Sturm will tell you that that was such a bittersweet day for him. He was so happy to see his children, but he was so confused and so angry over what his wife said, how she wanted to leave. They divorced in 1974, the next year. He got married. That marriage ended in divorce too. And last I heard, he's still alone. All four of the children, Robert and, uh, Robert and, and uh, Roger and Cindy and Lori, all, all four of the children, they have a picture. This picture is in their home and it's hung up in a prominent place. But Robert Stern, the POW who came home, doesn't have the picture in his home. He said, because it's such a hard day for me to remember. For some of us, coming home is actually a hard thing. Some of us don't want to go home because of the heartbreak. Some of us don't want to go home because of the memories and the hurts, the difficult relationships we've experienced. Some of us don't want to go home because we're afraid that we'll be let down and disappointed. And I'm here to tell you today that if you were to come home to God through Jesus, Nothing can separate you from his love ever. Nothing will keep you from him and his acceptance, his inheritance, that intimacy that he promises to you, that that new identity of having God's spirit in your heart and life. None of that will be taken away from you if you come home to him and trust in him today. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I know, in fact, we all know that our human relationships often fall short of what you desire, what we need, what we want. And for many of us, coming home is actually a hard thing. But I thank you that no matter how difficult our human families are, I thank you that your forever family is that. It lasts forever. And I thank you that your family is without limit when it comes to love and acceptance. I thank you that you welcome and include forever anyone who trusts in you.
I thank you that because when we trust in you and because we're welcome and included in your family forever, I thank you that that gives us such a peace, that gives us such a confidence, that gives us such a joy, knowing that your spirit is within us, knowing that that inheritance, the entire universe is ours because of you. Knowing that we have that intimate relationship with you, Daddy, thank you. I pray that, Lord, you'd help us to rest in that, to trust in that, to share that with the many, as many people as we can. I pray for those that have never come home that they would do so today, that they would put their trust in Christ and be accepted into your family because you've redeemed them on the cross. Now bless us, Lord, we pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.